The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome to Remembering Kristallnacht, Why Talk About the Holocaust, organized by the Herzog Centre at Trinity College Dublin in association with the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Centre. We hope to have time to open this conversation to the audience, so please submit questions for the speakers by using the Q&A function in Zoom, and if you're joining us on Facebook, please submit them in the comments. You can also join us on Twitter, tagging at TLR Hub. Each year, the Herzog Center organizes an event to commemorate Kristallnacht, which took place on the 9th and 10th of November, 1938, when a wave of state-supported and mandated violence against the Jews of Greater Germany, so including Austria and parts of Czechoslovakia, was unleashed. The extent of the destruction that took place over those few days was devastating to all aspects of Jewish life. Jewish places of work, worship and burial were the focus for this organized performance of anti-Semitism, while communities and individuals were subjected to physical violence and humiliation. The vulnerable were not spared, including those in hospitals, schools and orphanages. About 100 individuals died and 30,000 Jewish men were rounded up and sent to camps. The Nazi leadership justified these outrages, blaming the Jews themselves and demanding the community pay a fine of one billion Reichsmark. Kristallnacht is seen as a critical moment in the persecution of the Jews of Germany, as the legislation and decrees that followed these events ensured the marginalization and exclusion of the Jews from almost every aspect of life under German rule. Our conversation today is entitled, Why Talk About the Holocaust? We know it is essential that we remember the genocide that took place in the heart of Europe in living memory. And two of our speakers had personal and communal links to the Holocaust. Yet there are also other reasons that we need to have this conversation. The current normalization of the rhetoric of othering and exclusionary discourse that has been enabled by social media and sympathetic audiences. To discuss this in what we hope will be a series of events, we welcome Lenny Abrahamson. He is the director of the critically acclaimed Room, which was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. His latest TV series, Normal People, adapted by and based on Sally Rooney's Man Booker long-listed novel of the same name, was released in 2020 to widespread acclaim. Oliver Sears, a London-born, Dublin-based art dealer, he is the son of a Holocaust survivor and a former trustee of Holocaust Education Trust Ireland. I'd like to offer a special welcome to his mother, Monica, who is watching this evening. Sarah Carey is a writer, broadcaster and communications consultant. She writes a column for the Irish Independent on a Saturday and has previously written for the Sunday Independent, the Sunday Times and the Irish Times. 
Thanks, Silika, uh, for that introduction. And you're all very welcome this evening uh, to what I hope will be um, and perhaps add some color to the US election when we're also conscious of the modern day results of othering people. And, and I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation around that. Um, I'm going to ask Oliver and Lenny to kick us off this evening by telling us just a little bit more about uh, the context in which they're going to be speaking us to us tonight and their personal histories. Um, Lenny, can I start with you? Thanks, Sarah. And I'm delighted to be taking part in this. And thanks so much to the Long Room Hub and uh, to you and everybody involved. Um, I suppose growing up um, in a Jewish uh, family, you know, I suppose I, my mother was a, um, a first generation or second generation in the sense that her parents emigrated from Poland in the 30s, um, leaving behind the rest of their families in Southeast Poland. And um, many of those family members ended up in the camps. And that was something that very much marked my uh, mother's family's lives here and through them down to, our, to to the children to my generation so um it's something that the, the memory of or the the existence of the holocaust or the shadow of the holocaust is something that i grew up with um we know a little bit about my grandfather my mother's father's family we know very little about my maternal grandmother's family and um, very little traces left of them um, and again, on my father's side, at least half of uh, his side of the family were also wiped out. So um, I think it, it feels like a present um, event to me and to, to people, I think, from similar backgrounds. And although I think to my children and to, to people, you know, to, to many younger people, the Holocaust seems like a tremendously long time ago, it really isn't. And it really occurred in in a society not very unlike ours, um, very developed uh, part of the world with a, a sense of itself as a sophisticated, um, or, you know, um, sort of deeply cultural um, place. And indeed it was. Um, so the very possibility of that kind of barbarism erupting within what otherwise seems like a normal functioning um, kind of sane society is something that I've always felt the possibility of um and um and so uh, you know it, it makes i think somebody with that background very sensitive to the kinds of shifts and changes and alarm bells and and indications of of the kind of um the music of the 30s which we can see versions of playing um you know albeit sometimes quietly sometimes more loudly at the moment um so that's where my interest in in this comes from. But it's also the interest I think that any human being should have just in 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 our capacity, all of our capacity to do terrible um, violence and evil. Um, and uh, and that happens in 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 that's happening now in parts of the world. And and I think just that sense of the importance of continuing to talk about this as a present danger. Is, is what motivates me to be involved in events like this. Thank you. And Oliver, what about yourself? Oh, and you have to unmute Oliver. <laughs> Here we go. There Sorry. you are. Now, we've got you. Got me. Um, my mother was born in Woods, uh, southwest of Warsaw in 1939 to a 
Jewish family. Her father ran a stocking factory. Um, at the outbreak of war, he was arrested and disappeared forever. Um, he was 32 and went on the run. Um, they found themselves in the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, they were living outside the ghetto on fake papers for a while. Um, they had an incredible story of survival, uh, including jumping off a train that was destined for a concentration camp. And they survived, found their way to London. My grandmother was introduced to a Jewish Polish dentist who had been stranded in London during the war. He lost every single member of his family, um, including a pregnant wife, and they married and they had an, an extraordinary bond forged out of uh, grief and loss. Um, although love definitely grew out of this. And uh, th this man adopted my mother and um, uh, they, uh, which was a, a very extraordinary experience for my mother to have a father for the first time um, aged seven. Um, on my father's side, um, also his, uh, his father was a Pole from Warsaw, who uh, came to uh, England in the 30s. And he was one of those Poles who fought for the RAF. But he lost a brother, his parents, and 20 uncles and aunts. Um, and all their family. So the, the, the Holocaust for me um, has loomed very large in my life. Uh, and at this stage, age 52, um, I, I see, uh, I, I try and find a way of living uh, in a world where the Holocaust happened to my family at very cl close quarters. So one part is personal therapy. How do I live in a world uh, that allowed this to happen? And the, the other side of it is, well, actually I live in a world where this was allowed to happen by doing things like this to try and stop it happening again. Mm. And uh, should probably tell people maybe a little bit while I'm here, this hasn't been typically one of the areas that I've covered um, in my writing or broadcasting, but several years ago, I happened to meet Oliver at an art gallery opening. We were introduced by a mutual friend and uh, we got chatting and he told me his story and I thought it was such an extraordinary story. Um, I interviewed him on my radio program. It was called Talking Point on News Talk. And then after that, um, he invited me along to attend a talk that his friend, Philippe Sands, gave on a Kristallnacht um, uh, event, I think it might have been, in Trinity, where he talked about his book, East West Street, which I have to say, if you haven't read it, I think it's one of the finest nonfiction books that I have ever read. It's an extraordinary story of um, his ancestors and uh, their experience in Poland during the war. But also he brought into it all the legal background and legal history of crimes against humanity and genocide and this philosophy and legal theory was woven throughout the story and I think that's what made me realize and really brought it home to me how present this is and that we're standing around today 
are we watching the enabling, you know, of similar kinds of events today? You know, and I don't think we can turn our faces away from that. And I think we have to be vigilant, like just constantly vigilant that we keep an eye out for similar tendencies. So to that end, Lenny, I'll go back to you. And um, Zulika at the start there gave us a very nice um, summary of what actually happened on the night of Kristallnacht. But what did it symbolize? Why was it so important as a bridge from semi-normal society um, into enabling the Holocaust? Well, I'll, I'll say something short about this because I think Oliver has a sort of better grasp on the historical detail, but I'm going to quote Oliver, um, uh, you know, from talking to him previously, and I think this analysis is a very good one. Um, part of what the purpose of Kristallnacht was from the point of view of the Nazis was a sort of testing the waters exercise. So in a way, what you're doing is, and it's, and it's at the end of a long process of marginalization and othering, to use that word, of, of Jews uh, in Germany. Um, but it's uh, one way in which you can push to see how far um, how far you can go to um, to to sort of in a way there's a process of I suppose um, desensitization in in one respect, but also establishing that these are now possibilities that this kind of action can be part of the narrative. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to hand you to Oliver because I think he can probably fill out the details a little bit more around ideas like that. Okay, Oliver, go for it. Um, well, I think to, to really understand Kristallnacht, for me, you have to understand that the Jews of Germany were the most integrated and assimilated community of Jews in Europe. There were 500,000 out of a population of about 30 million. A uh, hundred thousand of them fought uh, for the Kaiser in the First World War. 17,000 of them died. Hitler received an Iron Cross. Major Hoffman, a Jew, gave it to Hitler. So the Jews were, uh, one could say, German first and Jewish second. So what uh, Kristallnacht for me symbolizes, well, it's not so much what it symbolizes, it's what happened. Uh, the demonization of one section of society based on race alone was effectively complete in a legal sense. So you had, once Hitler came to power, very quickly, a couple of years later, you see the Nuremberg laws, that strip away incrementally the rights of Jews. So that when Kristallnacht happens, um, they, have, they have no rights and nowhere to go. It's hard to, to imagine that the fire brigade, when they were called out, uh, were called out simply to douse the flames that may have encroached on non-Jewish properties. So every organ of the state was uh, fired up and aimed at terrorizing the Jewish community on the 9th and 10th of November, 1938. Um, so I, I, I think it's very important 
to understand what Kristallnacht was and what it wasn't. It wasn't a blueprint for the Holocaust. Um, remember, uh, it was only, it was 10 months later that Germany invaded Poland and with it, 3.2 million more Jews. So up, up to Kristallnacht, uh, it was really the intention of the Nazis to effectively terrorize not only the Jews, but the allies into taking the, the, the Jewish population um, out of Germany. And it's of, you know, there's no coincidence that the Evian conference happened a few months previously, where uh, as, as essentially a group of nations discussed the Jewish problem. Um, Jews desperately wanted to emigrate, but weren't accepted. One British foreign minister actually said that it was unwise for Britain to import Germany's problem. So perhaps um, that line alone gives mm -hmm. you some idea of how lonely it must have it must have been for German Jews in 19 at the end of 1938. Yeah, and I think perhaps a lot of people watching might know of a memo in Ireland's Department of Justice in the 1930s, which advised against the wisdom of allowing Jewish refugees come in because it might give rise to anti-Semitism. Uh, which was an interesting uh, twist on it. Um, so Lenny, do you want to say anything more, you know, about um, Kristallnacht and that process of othering, you know, and that idea of testing? I think that was a really good point Oliver made. And I think people have seen that in the actions, you know, of Putin and Trump. Just, just see what the reaction is when you try something. And, and what was the reaction? Well, I mean, without sort of, specifically talking about the period immediately following Kristallnacht in Germany at that time, I think the whole idea of normalization is, is so interesting and important when you're thinking about what the journey is towards acts which you look at in their complete form, you know, in the, in the rear view mirror of history and think, how could that be possible? Th these things are possible because they occur at the end of processes of either demonization or a kind of distortion of, of the public perception of, of a minority. I mean, you, you know, it's extraordinary. I think what's been most disturbing for me about the last few years politically in Europe and in the States and in other parts of the world, um, but particularly in Europe and the States where one is accustomed to thinking about, you know, truth, fact, um, norms, etc., having kind of real bite. Um, what's been most disturbing is just to see how quickly it is possible to frame the public conversation in a way which is distorted in its kind of DNA. And, you know, I recently, just listening recently to kind of debates about Brexit, for example, where you'll hear somebody say, well, you know, if the, the European Union are keen in a post Brexit world to not be too tough um, when it comes to say, you know, 
attitudes to trade deals with the USA, whether they'll in, include the British, uh, you know, seek to include the British or not. As if we lived in a world where the population or the Brexit leaning population of Britain will look at that and go, oh, look, we, you know, um, that's a very decent way in which we've been treated by um, this, by the European Union. In fact, how they view it will be entirely determined by the press that they read, much of which in Britain is um, very, you know, directly antithetical to the, to the European project. And had it not been for so long, then one would, could argue that Brexit wouldn't have happened. The same things play out in even darker um, ways when it comes to um, race and scapegoating and when it comes to the discussion of Im immigrants, for example, or, or um, in the context of this conversation of Jews. So that it is not difficult to imagine a circumstance in which if it was expedient politically and there was a strong enough will and a compliance enough press, and the press doesn't have to be directly on side, it just has to be sort of spongy and pliable and, and easily influenced. It is not beyond um, imagination that this that a conversation which is deeply anti-Semitic, for example, could be slowly and carefully begun in in our part of the world, and 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 you see it um, at least in embryo in 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 various in various ways. So I think understanding um, the beginnings of the process in Germany, which led to Kristallnacht. Um, helps you look now and, and recognize the dangers of the same sort of slow seeding of um, ugly, distorted, destructive um, appeals to the sort of worst instincts of people. One can see how that could, if practiced for long enough and carefully enough, lead to almost any sort of, um, you know, the, the, the construction of a, of a kind of public consensus of almost, you know, from from the from the beginning, looking forward, unimaginable kind of darkness. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to get in just a little bit later into the modern day parallels, you know, and that process of othering. But I just want to talk for a little while about the specific nature of anti-Semitism, because it seems to me it is different, you know, than other kinds of prejudice or hatred in that it's so layered and so complex and it comes from the left and the right. You know, it, it's got an elitist tint to it. It's looking down on people. Oliver, could you take us through some of those layers and the complexity of anti-Semitism? That's an easy question. Um, <laughs> yes, anti-Semitism um, is, uh, it's very, very complicated. Um, you know, uh, this you have the notion of a global elite on the one hand, uh, and we're vermin on the other. Um, it's uh, and everything in between. We're definitely uh, we're a fifth column. Uh, we're 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 definitely um, not fully committed in a in a patriotic sense. Um, and of course, uh, it's very, very old. Uh, so there's, there's the obvious kind of um, religious aspect uh, of this, the, the, the Christ killing people. Um, and then you have the whole connotation with, uh, or association with money. Um, interestingly, apparently Shakespeare never met a Jew. Um, so 
he didn't need to, it seems, to, to depict um, his, his famous character. And likewise with uh, Dickens, it's not clear, I think, whether he met, met Jews. But um, so uh, I, I, I would say that, um, I would say that it, it is genuinely a very, very complicated issue. How do you, um, where, where, where in fact do you begin and end? Because this is also, this form of racism is, is protean. It changes shape. Um, for example, um, Islamic fundamentalism has reared its head in a new way in the last 15 years only. Um, it's that that's a very that obviously a very frightening phenomenon. Um, where does it come from? You know, we could debate that alone in an hour. Um, so I'm not sure that I'm being I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm being very helpful. Um, well, but Lenny, do you want to do you want to come in on that? The idea that it comes from left and right and top. Yeah, I mean, so what's really interesting about anti-Semitism, in a way, it's a sort of perfect, um, it's it's a perfectly kind of, it's a ready-made, um, there's a ready-made scapegoat that that has the advantage of not even being sort of visible, and and actually the. The absurdity of anti-Semitism is part of its, I think, reason why it's so successful and so long-lived in that um, the, whether if the Jew is present, then the, the, you can distort the conversation about the, that particular community. But just as much so if the Jew isn't present, then they, as Oliver said, can be the sort of fifth column that, you know, all conspiracy theory relies on the sort of idea of something hidden, which is exercising great power. Like, you know, Trump may be the white, the, the, in the White House as the president of the United States, but there is this thing called the deep state, which, which can be used to, to, to kind of, you know, form whatever narrative is useful for him about his own failure or what, what he desires. I think what's really interesting about anti-Semitism is that actually from the point of view of the left, and this is a really subtle argument, and, and again, could take up the whole hour, but from the point of view of, of the left, and, and this is true of, of people who are genuinely in the main, deeply anti-racist, anti-Semitism is, is regarded as a lesser sort of um, racism to the extent that sometimes without being conscious of it, people's idea of the Jew as kind of powerful and successful means that it can kind of, anti-Semitism can, can have the kind of, can take on the, the, the aspect of punching up rather than punching down. So you'll also see many examples where, um, you know, a book like, just, you know, Oliver mentioned Dickens, and, and I'm not suggesting that books be taken off the shelves for, I think this is a very complex debate about, about how we deal with changes in cultural attitudes in, in art, etc. But it's very it's sort of impossible to imagine a book in which, uh, a, say, a, a, a member of a different minority was depicted in the way that Shylock is depicted in 
in Oliver Twist. And yet that that's still the subject of, you know, musicals and and it's it's still a sort of it's still a very culturally central book, which is considered not as problematic as the equivalent story mm -hmm. dealing in that same way with with another minority. So there's this notion as well, I think, like if you look at the notion of whiteness, that um, there's, I can't remember who said it, but there's a brilliant, uh, there's a brilliant uh, phrase which somebody said that, that Jews are kind of Schrodinger's whites. It depends on who's looking at them. So if, you're, um, if you are uh, left-wing with an impulse towards a kind of anti-Semitism, then you will tend to think of Jews as not, you know, it's punching up at a powerful mm -hmm. group of people. It's not about race. Jews are white. And However, Oliver, why, why now? You know, like we're not looking back. You know, anti-Semitism is a thing now. It's on social media now. You've got QAnon and all these people. You've got people shouting about George Soros. Why, why is it alive today? Well, it's interesting you should mention QAnon. Um, um, I don't know if we are planning to get to this, uh, this subject, but uh, social media um, is the number one uh, contributing factor to the rise of anti-Semitism globally. And uh, I went to an IRA conference in 2017. IRA is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Um, it's an alliance, it's an intergovernmental body that influ designed to influence government policy as far as essentially Holocaust education and memorialization is concerned. It has um, 35 countries, I think, joined, including Ireland. Um, and in 2017, uh, they said um, that social media was the biggest problem spreading the um, or spreading anti-Semitism. And, you know, I, I've been trolled, um, Lenny's been trolled, um, and um, I think Lenny and I actually take different, um, uh, uh, different action. Um, I think Lenny's tried it all, including engaging with them, fight, punching back and what have you. Um, I, I, I made a vow that a long time ago that I would never actually engage uh, with anybody over social media. If you, um, if you have a point to make, um, try going through a mediated platform. See if you can get that far. If, if you can't, there's a, every possibility that your point might not be worth making. Okay. So that's my view. Right. And I, by the way, we're getting lots of questions in on the Q&A in the chat, and I will be getting to those in a couple of minutes. Lenny, do you want to go back to that point then about social media and your attempts to engage with people? Can you tell me what are they saying to you? I mean, and it, it, it varies, really, you know. Um, so I've been pretty public about particular causes, you know. So if it's if I'm talking about a social, a socially progressive uh, cause like you know, same-sex marriage or um, the repeal referendum, or whatever. I will absolutely guaranteed get. Um, you know, it ranges from up from completely vile 
um, you know, stuff about the Holocaust and images and things like that to um, sort of sly comments about, well, Lenny's not really Irish. That would be a very standard one. And that very much fits the, the, the kind of picture, which is, um, you know, and again, it, that this double image of the Jew is both kind of low and high is, it, it really depends on the person that's coming at you. Some people are coming at you like you're a kind of disease in the body politic. Other people are coming at you like you're a kind of puppet master, um, you know, controlling George Soros affiliated type. I had somebody suggest that the reason I'd been successful as a film director was because of my undoubted sort of, you know, um, racial connections to powerful Hollywood elites, which made me laugh. I remember thinking, God, I can just imagine, yeah, that, that's why they wanted to fund Adam and Paul. You know, that's exactly what they're after <laughs> in Hollywood. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, so my, my responses have, have sometimes been, yeah, and I think Oliver's probably right. Sometimes I take the bait. Sometimes I, um, with people who are less virulent, I will occasionally just ask a question back. And they usually just I don't know, they'll either double down or sort of back off or, but really it's it's kind of pointless. I, I, I think, um, but that, are, that idea that you are, and I think this is also fascinating, that the people who say you're not really Irish or wherever you are from, you know, it's, it's a standard experience that people, Jewish people have in different countries. The people who deny you your, your national, your place in the nation, um, or claim you don't fit that are the people who are preventing you, at least as they would wish to be being part of that. And, and what about my first question about why is this so alive now? You know, Oliver and I were talking to Hadley Freeman there about a month ago in the Dublin Literary um, uh, History Festival. I was interviewing her and she said it's never felt more important to be a Jew than in the last five years. What is driving it right now? There's... I mean, I'll, I'll say one brief thing. Uh, it's it's part of something. It seems to me part of something bigger. Like um, there is a general shift towards populism. Um, you know, there is a general shift towards a kind of um, the 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 bringing into the center of discourse of a kind of ethno nationalism. There are um, there are parties which are on the far right, even in 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 a country like ours, or be it in, in our case, sort of rather buffoonish and small, but nevertheless present. Um, and if Trump proves anything, he proves that, you, you know, being a buffoon does not stop you um, mm -hmm. getting, doing pretty well. Um, but then there are parties which kind of play to that audience, but in a, in a less overt way. And that's been a winning strategy um, in places like Hungary and Poland to an extent in Britain, certainly in the States. And I think as soon as you've got that kind of temperature rise, as soon as that animus is there, and as soon as people start tapping into the sorts of resentments and, and um, et cetera, that, that motivate those, those movements, then anti-Semitism as the kind of grand old conspiracy theory, as the, as the kind of foundational, you know, um, uh, uh, mode of racism, it's bound to be a significant part of that. And, and I mean, particularly because what's really interesting is like, you know, the Jew is always present in those stories. Like, so if you're anti-immigration and you're on the far right, 
it's not just that you're anti-immigration in terms of you know not wanting to see people from Asia or Africa come to your country. There's quite often this, this additional component of what's called the great replacement theory, which is that in fact, immigration is really being controlled by, promoted by um, the Jewish um, elites in order to undermine Western society. So there's usually a place, you know, for some aspect of um, anti-Semitism within any of the contemporary sort of populist movements. Um, I think that's why I think, it, you know, it's a dark tide, but it, it, it brings with it, it lifts all this awful stuff from the bottom. And sadly, part of that is, is, is anti-Semitism. Um, Oliver, I was doing another event last week with Liam Kennedy, the um, uh, Clinton Institute director from UCD, and we were talking about discrimination against um, people of color um, in America, and he was describing slavery as being the original sin of the United States, and every single generation has to grapple with it, and this generation is now grappling with it, and I suppose anti-Semitism in a way is similar, except of course it's going back to the Middle Ages. Um, so the so the the grappling of it today, uh, Lenny mentioned Poland and Hungary, but Poland in particular, I think, um, is the one that seems most live and most dangerous. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there and why you think it's going on there again? Well, Poland has a very very fractious relationship with Jews. Um, it had the largest population um, in Europe by a long shot. 10% of its population were Jews. Um, it, um, you know, these former Soviet countries that were first occupied by the Germans and then very quickly by the Soviets, they never had that period of introspection that Germany had. The other thing to say is that anti-Semitism in Poland is a much, much deeper cultural phenomenon than, than in Germany. Um, the, the surprise, uh, the, the, the surprise when, when uh, Hitler rose to power and the focus of his attention was the Jews. The surprise was that actually it happened in Germany. Um, Poland, you know, I visited Poland for the first time. Actually, I've only been once. Uh, my mother went back to Poland in 1990 and I joined her. That was her first time back. And um, we looked at graffiti on a wall, actually similar to Lenny's story uh, yesterday. Um, and I don't speak Polish, but my mother does, obviously. And in 1990, they were blaming Jews for the recession uh, that they were experiencing in 1990. Just to put it into perspective, the population, the Jewish population, in 1990 was 8,000. So, you're you, tiny. 
that, that, that it was a tiny microscopic population. Jew, there, there were, people don't seem to, they seem to uh, either not read history or not read enough history. Um, pogrom is not a German word. It's a Russian word translated perfectly into Polish as pogrom. And um, there were Nuremberg light laws brought into Poland um, in the 30s before the occupation. There were Jews being murdered in 1946 and 1947 after the Nazis were vanquished. There was a uh, communist purge of Jews in 1968. And uh, the population was 230,000. It went down to 80,000 and dwindled down to um, a very small amount today. So um, what I had hoped, I was very emotional when the EU really seemed to be um, forging ahead. I remember taking a drive uh, from the south of France to Budapest with a couple of friends um, in the early 2000s, waving my European Union passport um, and getting stopped in Slovenia by a policeman who was just looking at our passports and we got waved on. And I felt incredibly emotional. I, I felt amazingly emotional to be in countries which just, for me, the blink of an eye ago um, would have arrested me and possibly murdered me. Mm -hmm. So my big, my big hope for Poland was that it would finally turn its gaze towards uh, Western democracy and embrace um, its values. Because I, I see somehow um, the, uh, the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe with uh, uh, almost perfectly in, in, in line with the withering away of democratic values. It mm. seems to be the case. Um, so I'm going to start taking questions now. We've got about um, 10 minutes and we've some brilliant questions in. So Lenny, first one for you is from Patrick Nevin, who's the manager of the Tala Travelers Community Development Project. And he was referencing, you know, that big vote that Peter Casey got and how he went up in the polls once he started talking about travelers. And Patrick is wondering how important is the language of othering? to the development of creating an us and them mindset. And, you know, how can we protect and support vulnerable minorities, you know, like travelers, like Roma here in Ireland? Uh, it's a great question. And it's really important that it was raised because in terms of my own sort of milestones of, of uh, not quite despair, but of really just feeling um, slapped across the face, that vote for Casey was a big one. 
And what it was amazing about it, and we talked about the normalization, has been in this country for an awful long time, a kind of exception made in certain in communities across the country and right up into um, you know different social uh, kind of strata, that it was somehow acceptable to be negative about the traveling community. I mean, and, and that simmered for since I was a child. Um, and then when you saw Casey come along and you saw the kind of glee with which people said, oh, well, finally, somebody's not afraid to tell the truth. He's not PC. He's, I found that horrifying. And I can only imagine what it must have been like if you were uh, a member of the traveling community at that point. And the, the vote he got there was, should, be, should serve as a warning to everybody that this country is not immune, you know, whatever that kind of core percentage of people that appear to be attracted to a sort of authoritarian, um, narrow definition of na nation, all of that bad stuff, we have that, we have that here too. Um, so uh, in, in terms of the substantive question, what can we do? The thing is, I think we can, all we can do is shout loudly when that happens um, to anybody. Um, because it's all part of the move of the same movement. There are no um, uh, nobody's safe unless everybody is safe. Uh, and I and I feel um, and I and I do think there is a sort a sort of there's a coming to understand, particularly in in the case of of the traveling community. There's there's a coming to understand that this is a is a form of racism which we have been lax about naming. Mm -hmm. um in this country and it must be it must be um kind of established for everybody from the you know and and so much of this through the education that that it is profoundly unacceptable um and and that you know this goes also for the treatment i mean th these are any brutalization of other people is a kind of is a kind of step on the road towards ultimate barbarism and i feel like how we treat asylum seekers how we mm -hmm. Um, treat other people um, in our society who are less advantaged. All of those things are part of the same um, impulse, um, which leads to the sorts of events that, that, that we're discussing tonight. Yeah, I, I have I personally, like I grew up in a political household, you know, and have always prided myself on having pals and having the crack with people that you could, you know, fall out over politics on. But the Peter Casey vote, when I met people who told me they'd voted for Peter Casey, like I just had to completely reassess them. You know, it, it, it was a really defining moment, I thought. We're getting in several questions about Israel. And, you know, what about the, the actions of Israel? So just to the audience watching tonight, we all talked about this beforehand and we decided, you know, Israel is just such a whole other debate that there just wouldn't be space to address that tonight. And Oliver made the point, and I think it's a very strong one, Israel didn't exist in 1938, you know. So in terms of Kristallnacht and, you know, the enabling and the othering and everything that was done to enable the Holocaust had nothing to do with the state of Israel because it simply wasn't there. So, you know, we think we might do that another night, but we're not going to address that tonight. You'll probably all feel it's an elephant in the room, but we, we just thought it wouldn't work in terms of tonight night's conversation. Um, Oliver, um, uh, some people, let me see, Anne Nolan has asked, I think a good one, 
Um, why do you think that Joyce made his most famous protagonist, Leopold Bloom, an Irish Jewish man? And, you know, you both mentioned that Dick, neither Dickens nor Shakespeare knew any Jews, but did Joyce know many Jews in Dublin? Um, so maybe both of you would like to have a quick go at that one. Oh, um, I, you know, I could only hazard a guess. Um, a particular empathy maybe with the whole notion of the outsider. That's what Joyce saw himself as. Um, I, you know, it's a great question and I'm, I'm shooting in the dark. I, I, I just Lenny, don't know. Lenny, would you like to have a go at that one? Well, I, I know that he did know Jewish people and that he, he, there's kind of some people have done really interesting work about who Bloom may have been kind of, inspired by or or not quite based on but so I think that he was aware of and, and had some contact with Jews in Ireland at that time but yeah I think Joyce was a you know it is a kind of a, 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 he was a modernist he would have he was very aware I think of of the kind of uh, cultural legacy of Jewish people in Europe he was very much um, against a kind of narrow nationalism and therefore would have, I think, um, you know, um, found the kind of prevalent anti-Semitism awful. If you look at, um, you know, um, the famous scene where um, Daedalus is sort of arguing or being talked to by the, the schoolmaster and, you know, he says, uh, you know, he's clearly anti-Semitic and very portrayed in a very negative light by Joyce. I think he did have a kind of an empathy for uh, and an interest in, in, in people um, from, from that background. So yeah, it was a very conscious choice and a very provocative choice in, in the period in which he wrote Ulysses to, to of all the Irish characters he could have picked, of all the people he could have centered his, his masterpiece on to have picked this, this, this Jewish character was quite a statement. Um, Oliver, I think here's one for you. Elizabeth Kyo has asked, um, would you like to comment on the anti-Semitism that is currently the cause of so much trouble in the British Labour Party? You know, I mean, Corbyn is now suspended. Like, it's, it's amazing how alive this is. What's yes. your analysis of that? Um, well, I'm not a politician, so I can say lots of things at, at once without coming across as a complete idiot. Um, <laughs> I think many things about um, the Jeremy Corbyn uh, what, um, anti anti-Semitism question. I think that um, I think that Jeremy Corbyn uh, had in his life many opportunities to show um, the kind of empathy that any normal, um, seriously um, engaged politician would, should show. I think that um, he made some dreadful, dreadful errors of ju judgment. Um, looking at that mural in East London and not commenting, um, it is just mind-boggling. Howard Jacobson writes brilliantly about Jeremy Corbyn and anti-Semitism. Um, and I think that Jeremy Corbyn is a kind of unwitting anti-Semite. He is probably genuinely horrified 
um, to, to, be, to be labeled, I have no doubt. Um, but when you say things like, you know, British Jews don't understand irony, and you have Jonathan Lynn, who is Jewish and happens to be one of the co-writers of Yes Minister, saying, well, actually, um, I, I think I know about British irony. Um, it, it, it's just an absurdity, but what it does, what it does, it sends out a message that says, I consider Jews, whether they're British or not, different. And that's the thing that makes my blood boil. It has absolutely no place coming out of the mouth of um, uh, a leader in um, uh, of a major party anywhere, let alone in the UK. But I, I, I would also say that anti-Semitism and the Holocaust uh, are exploited by all sides. And at the same time, there was obviously a, uh, a group within um, a kind of pro-Blair uh, body within Labour who were agitating to get rid of Corbyn. And, and this was a, a, a perfect vehicle to, to, to drive. Actually, um, Michael Gove, um, amazingly, I, I couldn't believe this, uh, sent a letter to Keir Starmer saying, you know, after he had suspended Corbyn, saying, um, you know, uh, you have a lot of questions to answer because you supported Corbyn only a few months ago. All I would say to Michael Gove is, um, you, are, you are a caricature of um, an opportunistic, sleazy politician. And learn a little bit about the party that you represent. Har Harold Macmillan said of Thatcher's cabinet, in my day, the cabinet was filled with uh, Etonians. Today, it seems to be filled with Estonians. Now, that would have been very funny if Harold Macmillan was Jewish, but he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And we know exactly what he means. So if I, was, if I were Michael Gove, I would shut my mouth. Well, I think a lot of people would agree with you <laughs> on that front. Um, we've a lot of questions, so we're going to try and get to as many as we can. Lenny, first of all, a comment I'm going to read from Gabrielle Brocklesby. When the non-Irishness of Jews is ever suggested in my company, I always use the word typically Irish, because this will be relevant also to Protestant people here. Over 400 years with English names, the problem arises when a nationality is based on a massive shared religious identity, e.g. Catholicism as part of being Polish and Irish. And I think this is changing very rapidly now in Ireland, and the Jews are seen as truly Irish, but maybe still not typically Irish. And on that, and a lot of people have asked this, but I'll credit this one to Ushin McNeil. Do the panelists feel their Jewish identities um, have caused, oh dear, it's disappeared a minute, have caused them to be marginalized within Irish society? So Lenny, as you grew up here, you know, how conscious were you of, of were, were you othered or, you know, did the, the kids in your class, um, class not notice it too much or what? I mean, I, I think I had a pretty good, I mean, I, I, I feel deeply connected. I mean, I, you know, I, I re always refused that sense of 
um, that idea that there was something kind of un-Irish about being Jewish. Like what, why, all that it proves, the fact that I'm here proves that Irishness as a category is big enough to include me. I mean, that's just the sort of logical um, result of, of thinking about um, of what countries really are. Um, I don't think, I think there was definitely some anti-Semitism. Um, there were ways in which people talked or thought it was okay to joke or, which I would have probably gone along with. Um, which thinking back on it now does, of course, seed itself in some way. But I wouldn't claim um, in any way to have been a, a, a victim in that I've, you know, I was, I came from a pretty privileged background, had a very good education, have have never felt in any material way that that I've been excluded from anything. So no, I don't feel. So can I ask you more specifically about something? Oliver and I were talking about this last week about philo-Semitism, mm -hmm. where you've got people, oh, the Jews are great, great yes. people, fantastic, you know. <laughs> I'm always really uncomfortable with that because I just think, you know, that is, if, if the anti-Semitism, if anti-Semitism is absurd, then so is philo-Semitism. When somebody says, God, your Jews are so clever. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very, you know, that just tips over into something very dark. Very cool. I know some very stupid people who are, you know, um, right. um, and I know some, you know, it, it all, you know, the whole idea of kind of um, assessing the race. I mean, the whole idea, I mean, just separate conversation, but the whole idea of a race itself is sort of ridiculous. The whole idea of race itself is a very clumsy category. The reason why I identify as Jewish and, and think that it is a race is only because of the existence, actually, of anti-Semitism. It's defined by, it's, it's sort of imposed by that attitude. I mean, of course, there are deep traditions into Eastern Europe, all of which came through my family, sense of humor, particular interest in food, all sorts of things. But, but the idea of a kind of clear racial categories is patently absurd. Unfortunately, as long as people will label you in that way, then I'm certainly not gonna walk away from it because- um, You're gonna own it. Yeah. Yeah. Oliver, Helen Dignan has a question. Um, what's your opinion on the use of the Holocaust as a backdrop or as a story in contemporary fiction, novels, for example, by authors who have no personal connection to these events? Uh, John Boyne's Boy in the Striped Pajamas is one such example. But now there are several have come out and, and some people have even used terms to describe, you know, Holocaust lit and, and these kind of terms. Um, what do you think about those? Um, I think that um, they can be okay. Um, I think it's about, it's just about the quality of the research mm. and the writing. Um, I, you know, I, I have to say, I, and I don't know John Boyne personally, I haven't met him, uh, but I just wish he had never written that book. Why? It, because it's used in schools as a teaching aid and you know it's it and that that's a, a completely um inappropriate place for it the 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 uh premise of the story would never ever have happened it couldn't have happened and you know what in an age where we have um we have survivors who are still alive, I would say, and who are prepared to speak out. And lots and lots of really, really well-written 
um, literature, first-hand literature, we have um, Elie Wiesel and Anne Frank um, r right across the spectrum. Um, I think that if you're going to write a Holocaust-related um, novel, please, please, please do your research. Okay. Um, now, just to the audience, we're at half seven when we were supposed to end, but there's some super questions here. So I I'm going to try and get through them if, if you want to bear with us for another few minutes. Um, Lenny, Caroline Morrissey asks, is there any Holocaust-themed film Lenny has seen that has had a very deep and lasting impact on him? Um, yes, there are um, some films um, that I've seen, I think, um, Laszlo Nemesh's film Son of Saul is a really powerful film. Um, there are some um, films which are indirectly connected to the Holocaust, which I think are um, which are really powerful. It's it's a very you know it's an extremely difficult thing to depict. I think, and and one has to ask oneself the question of whether you know are you. I don't agree that there is any sort of religious, I mean, in, in the, in the, not in the sort of non-denominational sense, you know, that there, there shouldn't be a kind of a, a it's, it shouldn't be a taboo, but I think you have to be very careful in how you depict um, events because in a, in an odd way, film does this all the time and we forgive it because it, it you know, storytelling generally imposes a kind of order on things and, and is a, a way in which people make sense of things. And I'm very interested in films generally, which break that a little bit, at least allow you, allow a sort of a sense of uncertainty or, or where meaning is not clearly, um, you can't extract a clear kind of neat meaning. But I think particularly when you're dealing with events that are um, horrific, if they reduce those events to something too easily digestible, then you are doing a kind of violence to the reality of, of the experience. I and mean, I think one of the dangers when telling stories about, one of the difficulties in making any sort of film about the Holocaust is as soon as you put somebody into a Nazi uniform, there is a way in which that person is viewed by the audience. There's a kind of good and bad um, uh, template that you impose. What's so interesting about human beings is that they don't see themselves in that way. And, and so the strongest stories are the ones which very uncomfortably show you the possibilities in all of us of behaving in the ways that 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 people have behaved historically. So um, I'm 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 particularly uh, critical, I think, when I watch films about the Holocaust. But I don't think it's impossible to achieve something really valuable. Um, by the way, Lucy McCabe has offered, um, apropos our discussion on Joyce, that he was a friend and English teacher of the Jewish-Italian writer Italo Savevo. Well, I hope I yeah. pronounced that right, um, in, in Trieste. A um, couple of people asking about Trump, you know, and in terms of testing the waters. I mean, you know, in his first hundred days, he came in, you know, with the Muslim ban and, and things like that and what he's been doing. And Oliver, you know, I think because his vote was so big, there's no danger of us saying, uh, oh, that's fine, he's beaten, he's gone, because clearly what he stood for is not. Um, what, what next for America, do you think? What next for the Democrats? And what next for us in, in just trying to process and understand why people would support him? 
Oh, that's such a such an annoying. Oh, and it's seven. It's seven thirty-four. So give us the short version. <laughs> okay. I, I, uh, my, my own, my own view is that um, Biden and the Democrats have to reverse as much uh, of this noxious legislation as possible. I think I always had faith in America getting over this because. America has very strong institutions. The Democrat Party are immensely well funded. So I, I really felt as awful as it was to observe, um, it, it was so interesting that um, the, the one thing that they, the Republicans um, could not pervert or distort was the vote counting, because effectively they have uh, the, 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 this process is being managed by both sides and no Republican um, vote manager has put his or her hand up and said there's there's a problem here. So yeah, but, but when you look at, say, social media like right now today is out there still persuading people about the same myths, you know, and QAnon and all these people, um, you know, that generated that vote for Trump. So um, they're, they're you, you've, you've just gone back to my earlier point. Yeah. You don't get Trump without social media. Mm. And you know, Sasha Baron Cohen back, was banging the drum. And I completely agree. Why don't we mm. simply turn the social media giants into publishers and find them into oblivion? I would be very, very happy to have to apply for a license to use Twitter. Okay. Or YouTube, I, re I really would. There is, um, with freedom of speech comes responsibility. Um, and Twitter, the, these ha are enormously powerful megaphones. And I, I think that we've seen, we, we, we thought when the internet was born that it was the end of autocracy. Actually, uh, it's not working, it needs to be regulated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a great book by Avenue Morisov um, going to that point that when, you know, social media first started, autocrats and dictators tried to ban it. Then they realized, oh, no, we can actually use this. Yeah. And they let yeah. it in. Um, I'm going to ask two more questions. Uh, Lenny, one for you from uh, Nora White. Do you think that in focusing on the Holocaust in history education in Ireland, we overlook anti-Semitic events in our own history? Um, and then do you think, are there right and wrong ways of commemorating the Holocaust? Um, to answer the first question, I think it, absolutely, you know, if you're talking about anti-Semitism, you should talk about um, the Limerick pogrom. We should talk about um, what happened in terms of accepting or not accepting refugees um, from Europe um, before and after the war. Um, Yes, it's very important not to make it, I mean, I, you know, it's very important not to make it feel like something that happened somewhere else and a tremendously long time ago. I think the only way to do Holocaust, I mean, I, I, this is really Oliver's territory, but from my point of view, the only way to do Holocaust um, education is to make it relevant to how things operate now and, and to, to show ways in which um, uh, the, the, the same patterns and forces can, can come about again. If it's taught as a sort of, um, uh, once-off, terrible uh, kind of aberration, then uh, I don't think that's as effective. 
Okay. Um, and Oliver, um, what would I have so many questions here to, to choose from? Um, okay, here's one. You know, how should we commemorate and educate about the Holocaust in Ireland? Your final question tonight. I bring it back to my personal experience. Um, in, in, a, in a way, we are still, we're so blessed that this is in living memory still, that there are survivors. Um, my mum's still alive. She doesn't uh, speak out much, but she has done. Um, and th this testimony is, is so valuable because it's the personal story that resonates. None of us can get round the, the scale of it. If you can communicate how an ordinary loving family um, was simply um, ju just completely flattened, humiliated and murdered, then you, you might actually understand and appreciate similarities in your own life and it might register. I, I would be in favor of a kind of compulsory um, uh, Holocaust education curriculum um, in 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 all schools. It's um, not not so that people become scholars in the Holocaust, but so that they can just reflect a little bit. You know. Okay. Um, I think is Ian your brother Oliver? Is it? Um, yes. <laughs> so he says, thank you for a fascinating and informative presentation. I'm concerned that you might have a problem with philo-Semitism because I am proud of being philo-Irish and he's Jewish. And Eamon Little says, um, there's a new radio documentary, No Ordinary Joe, a powerful personal testimony from a Slovakian survivor living in Ireland, will air on News Talk at 7 a.m. on November 29th and repeated again on the following Saturday evening at 9 p.m. So November 29th, 7 a.m. and that's from Eamon Little. I want to apologize to everyone whose questions I couldn't get to. They were absolutely brilliant but I can see people uh, falling off already and I don't want to uh, keep everybody too long. And Zulika's back I think to send us on our way. Don't forget to unmute yourself Zulika. Uh, yeah I'm so sorry to have to bring this evening to a close. It's so clear from the questions, the range of questions um, many of which, of course, we couldn't get to, and I'm really sorry about that, that this conversation is one which must be continued, um, but also expanded as well. Um, I want to say that this evening could not have taken place without the enormous technological support of the Long Room Hub team. So many thanks to them. Um, and a big thank you to Sarah, um, Oliver and Lenny for contributing so wisely to this difficult conversation. And thanks to everyone for logging in and for sending their questions. Good the Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.